Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the circuits of time. A home for the best in 80s movies. Grab your root beers and let's get rocking. Hello, it's episode 17 of the Circuits of Time. I am your host, JD, and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Jeff Dog. Jeff Dog, another episode to get stuck into, and we're going all sequels this episode. Would you believe it, JD? Uh, we're 17 episodes, 16 episodes in. This is episode 17, as you rightly said. This is actually our first sequel. So, those of you who haven't been following the uh, the social medias recently, haven't got any idea. You've got a one in 16 chance of guessing what we're doing a sequel to. <laughs> Well, the last episode might give them a bit of a clue, but um, as always, anyone who's listening to the show and enjoying it can check us out on Twitter. We are at Circuits of Time, and we also have our Instagram page, which we're trying to uh, keep up with the posting on. It's quite difficult. I'm still trying to get used to how to use Instagram, J-Dog. It's a bit new territory for me, but I'm, I'm doing my best. Well, we're old fogies now, JD, so we've got to get hip with the youngsters we are, and if you are interested in our Instagram page, it's Circuits of Time 80. Um, I, I couldn't put the S on the end of that, I don't know why. <laughs> but anyway, moving on. Uh, any movie news that you have to share this week? Yes, JD, we've got the imminent release of Coming to America coming very, very soon. I don't want to say this week or that, that next week, because it will really age or date our uh, podcast for the future listening. However, yeah. the, the one bit of new movie news that I did have, quite interesting enough, well, I thought it was interesting anyway, Eddie Murphy actually wanted to um, have cameos of the Nutty Professor characters in this film. I don't know how you'd feel about that, but it just seems a bit weird, cross, almost like crossing the streams, you might say. Uh, but cross- he wanted he wanted someone like Shaman Clunk to turn up in. Uh, I was just about to say what Wakanda. That's that's the thing, and it's not Wakanda. That's not the, the joke in the trailer. What's the place called? Zamunda. Yeah, I think you're thinking of um, uh, uh, Black Panther. Aren't Black you? Panther. Yeah, but it's the same joke they crack in the trailer. That's why it's confused me. But <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, I, I don't like the idea because. I'm not a fan of being taken out of the movie experience, and that would throw me totally. Yeah, well, the reason why he didn't do it was something to do with the budget. I mean, never mind the budget, just the idea just sounds... I don't know. Well, I I believe um, it's being released at midnight tonight on the day of recording. I've read a few little early reviews, and it's exactly what I expected. Good, not as good as its predecessor. I mean, it was never going to be. But I did hear something. uh, Someone described it as um, less tame, um, less crass, um, and more family friendly and it was like they were the three ingredients the counter of them was like what made the original so good um, so I, I, I'm not too positive on, on what I'm hearing but anyway we'll move on Put it this way JD if we're looking at Eddie Murphy's career trajectory one thing that we've got to compare it to is the adventures of Pluto Nash or Norbert big favourite of yours <laughs> I didn't have movie news about movies in general. Uh, I just thought I wanted to share that um, that it was 27 years to the day that we lost John Candy. I'd put a post out on the Twitter feed and as usual, anything that's John Candy related always garners a lot of attention. And 
about 27 years, Jadon. It's incredible. Um, you know, it's nearly three decades. I did have the misfortune recently of seeing his final film, uh, Wagons East, for the first time. And I must say it was a, it was a terrible uh, film to end on for him. Such a shame. I mean, obviously we still want them with us, but God had other plans. <laughs> but um, that film was uh, poor. I mean, is he in the film from start to finish? He, do you know, he's in quite a bit of the film. Um, something tells me that his, his scenes weren't quite finished. But, I mean, he's the he's the, the sort of ringleader who guides the group of alleged comedians back east because the Wild West is too wild for them. It's one of those films, I don't know if you noticed this with bad comedies especially, but there's music in every scene. You know, like a sort of like float, fluty, woodwindy type of thing and someone says something daft and there's a, a musical cue. I don't understand why they do that, but it always seems to happen in poor films. Well, luckily for John, I don't think people are going to be remembering them for Wagons East. Um, his catalog of films will live long in the memory, I'm sure. But anyway, it's time to tackle our latest 80s movie, which you may know from the following sound. get it from that sound j-dog what are we talking about on this episode ghostbusters 2 <laughs> yeah we're hot off the heels from recording the first one and we loved it so much that we've decided to jump right into part two so without further ado jeff dog tell us some facts about ghostbusters 2 some brief facts well i might as well just copy and paste in our brief facts from the last episode jd because it's a Film, <laughs> directed by Ivan Reitman and written by Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd. However, this one was released in June of 1989, as opposed to 1984. That's uh, so a five-year difference between the two, for those of you who aren't so good at maths. Made on a budget of between 30 and $40 million, its box office was $215 million. That's just for the film. Of course, everything ever since all those sales is going to skyrocket that and, of course, become, as we know, this huge franchise, uh, beloved by some, by many. It is. Um, it's interesting. I think, if I remember correctly from the last episode, the budget's slightly higher and the return is somewhat lower. So it, it, it didn't do well as well, did it, as, the, as, as its predecessor? No, it didn't. Um, and I think, and we can talk about this more later, I'm sure, think they were really hoping for a winning formula on this one. I mean, 1989, five years for a film that was so popular and so successful. They didn't capitalise on that momentum, did they? No. It, I, there are jokes in the film, aren't there, about this. Um, you know, the whole premise is, is that they washed up. Their names have fallen out of fashion with the people and obviously especially with the children. Well, your five-year-old children won't have been born when when the first events of the first film took place. So it, it's all about that, how time has sort of left them in the past, even though it is only five years. But the one thing I think certainly about 
a decade such as the 1980s, it, everything moved very fast in that decade. And there was a massive difference between the start of the decade and the end of it. And I don't think we've seen that in our adult lifetime in the past couple of decades that we've been, you know, old enough to remember. Think about 10 years ago, it wasn't a major difference. But then maybe, I don't know, maybe you need some time and distance away from things to see the changes. But I really don't, I mean, I feel the 80s, just everything's just changed dramatically. Yeah. It's difficult when you're living in the times to kind of uh, assess how it's going to be perceived. It's like, it's like standing in thick fog. It's never a stick when you're in it. Um, but let's move on to the let's move on to the story itself. What is Ghostbusters two all about? Movie synopsis. So five years after the events of the first film, the Ghostbusters have been plagued by lawsuits and court orders, and their once lucrative business is now bankrupt. And now when Dana played by Sigourney Weaver, the foe in the first film almost, it begins to have ghost problems again. The Ghostbusters come out of retirement when they're allowed to by, by a judge, and the Ghostbusters discovered that New York is once again headed for some sort of supernatural doom because a river of ectoplasmic slime is bubbling beneath the city, and an ancient sorcerer is attempting to possess Dana's baby to be born again on Earth. And, you know, I love the aesthetics of that slime. It's like, I think I remember having toys, and we can discuss toys later in the episode, because I, I do have, I did have a lot of Ghostbusters toys. Not necessarily the, the, the films, really. It was more the real Ghostbusters, if I remember right. But the pink slime was, was, was it was iconic to me. It was it was a character itself, wasn't it? Um, and it, the, the beginning of the film throws us right into the, Mix it shows you the pink slime before anything, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Although only watching this film in analysis and you start thinking about these things, I think the slime at the start of the film looks uh, a lot more transparent than the slime later in the film. <laughs> I'm glad you said that because I think there must have been. Let's say we see slime 15 times in this film. It's either different textures, different consistencies, different colours. I liked it when I think we see Ray go getting lowered into the old. I kind of wrote it like the old subway line and it's kind of like this deep pink, almost like a purple essence to it. I think that's when it looks at its best, but all the times it's just like, like watered down hand wash. <laughs> <laughs> it does, JD. It really does. And I'll tell you what, considering how striking this slime can be, these New Yorkers don't often seem to miss it a lot, don't they, even when it's right under the feet. <laughs> I mean, it's everywhere. It's causing uh, these buggies to go uh, haywire. Uh, and yeah, it's coming up out of the cracks of the ground and nobody seems to notice it. Nobody who works for any of those companies like the uh, the phone company and the gas company and the water company, nobody notices it. I mean, for goodness sake, it's a river of slime. It's got to be going somewhere. Just before we see the slime, uh, and we probably should have said this before we talked about it, as soon as the... Um, Paramount logo comes off the screen. We are kind of shocked. Is it Paramount? It is Paramount, isn't it? It's not JD. No, I'm very surprised you said that because well, it's Columbia. Uh, that's fine. You can, you can just edit it out. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason why JD is because, and I mean, this is something because we're, we're going to make references to our childhood throughout this. But one of the things that I could never quite get my head around because obviously I was a youngster. Um, the Columbia logo it looks strikingly similar to the Statue of Liberty. 
And the fact that obviously later in the film, the Statue of Liberty comes to life and all that. I never could quite marry the two up. But in my head, that image of the lady on the Columbia logo holding up a shining torch, that, that sort of burned in my head and always associated with Ghostbusters. Always, because well, I can't I, I, the films that I've had. But I've probably seen loads. I stand corrected. My apologies. The, the reason why I bring that up, it, it had nothing to do with what I was about to say. But before we see anything, we are uh, kind of jolted by this black screen and font saying five years later. And I don't know about you, but it doesn't feel very Ghostbustersy. In fact, it's almost very Terminator-like. Even the sound effect, it, it really does throw you off. I don't know if you recall that scene. Yeah, I did notice that. Um, that sort of there's no there's no sort of big bang, JD. It like you say, you just you're thrown in and you and you're in the film, and then you see, of course, Dana, don't you, walking down the street with the buggy? Hold on, what's happened here? She's got a child. Is that Benkman? So you're thinking all of these questions at the same time too. That scene with Dana walking down the street with the buggy, I don't know if you picked up on it, but I did when I watched it. It's so poorly choreographed and staged. <laughs> if you watch that back, it almost seems ludicrous. It's like, I'm going to say from the from the offset that I'm a fan of Ghostbusters 2, and, and obviously it, it, it pales to its, you know, Ghostbusters 1. We, we kind of all know that. But I'm not going to go easy on it at times during this review. I, I do... I am fond of it. I did enjoy it and I can watch it and laugh. But there are a few things that, that when they get it wrong, they get it really wrong. And that opening scene for me, again, it kind of, it, it's a victim of its own success because it's always going to be compared to number one. And if you think of that opening scene to number one, and when I mean, we talked about it in the last episode, it's so good and it's so scary and, and so creepy. This is so much flatter. And, and I can see, you know, yes, it's slightly creepy that, you know, the baby and the buggy movement, but it's just, there's nothing there. And even when there's, there's not even like a crescendo at the end, it's just like, she's grabbing the baby. It's like relief. And then the Ghostbusters logo hits. It doesn't pack the same punch, does it? No, I, I, do you know what, JD, you, you are saying exactly what was on my mind when I watched it recently. Just thinking that it is flat. There's something off about it. It's not quite right. It is creepy, but it's also laughable. And yeah, I agree. The choreography is a bit uh, laughable. There's one particular shot which I'm thinking of where it's kind of really low shot. Uh, the buggy sort of swerves out the way of a car and it does look like it's on a fishing wire <laughs> just being dragged around the car. But it's it's before the baby's buggy even begins to move. It's 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 actually as Dana's pushing it and you can kind of see like people walking past and it, it just you can tell they're extras. It's it's just not good. Um I'll ask you to watch it back because it's very striking. But Dana's got a baby. I mean, this is the first. Reveal, I suppose, as to how the story's developed, but we obviously don't know anything about that yet. Yeah, I think that it's it's probably trying to set it up in the audience's mind. Like I said earlier, is it Venkman's baby? What's happened in the interim? The one thing for me watching it now as an adult was I'm conscious of Sigourney Weaver and her career, and we've talked in earlier podcasts about the strong female character that she portrayed in Alien. Something tells me this was a conscious choice, really, to have her as a, as a single mother in the city. You know, kind of like a, a, a very feminist sort of move. And, you know, she's a woman and she's capable of doing things on her own, holding a job and looking after a child as well in the city. So I think that was a, a very deliberate choice on behalf of the, uh, you know, may I also say a bold one, because 
if you think about it, you don't you don't see many films where a single mother is the uh, protagonist, um, unless the fact that she's a single mother is inherent to the story, which I don't think it is really in this film. It's a part of the story, but it's not crucial to it. So yeah, I mean. In, the film's got some, and we'll talk about this, it's got some um, really neat ideas and quite um, modern ideas about it, almost too much for its own good, because I could, I will argue that it was made 10 years too early. No, it's interesting. Um, not long after that, J-Dog, we see the return of, well, it's it's Ecto-1A. Is there a few of them? I'm not sure. I, oh, I right. seem to have read something on a tweet. I'm maybe thinking maybe it's just that. I mean, we just call it Ecto One, don't we? I don't know if there was an upgrade, but it's back anyway. And we assume that the Ghostbusters are still uh, well Ghostbusting, but it, it's not quite the case, is it? No. The uh, when they actually enter, and again, this is another one of those things where very clever use of the script and setting up the characters. The lady invites them in, well, invites, should we say, Dan, uh, Ray, Stance, and Winston, Zedmore, into the house. And he says words to the effect of, uh, what are we dealing with? How big are they? And the, the woman says, well, about four feet. They're kind of looking at one another as if to say, oh, here we go. For us as the audience, obviously, we're thinking we're going to see some ghosts or monsters or ghoulies or something. But... In reality, obviously, it's, uh, well, what is it, JD? Well, it, it's a kid's party. And uh, <laughs> it's a funny scene in that. And it, I think you think to that one kid in particular who, who approaches them and he says that, you know, my dad says you used to are full of crap, um, which is interesting because, you know, the marshmallow man happened. That's the thing I think I think this film suffers with is that, um, and maybe it's because we they didn't have the internet, you can be a bit more forgiven, but, it wasn't a fake story. This thing happened. Most people in New York seen it. The city was kind of destroyed, or at least one of the buildings, 100 foot, whatever it was, Marshmallow Man was rampaging through the city. Why are we five years later and all of a sudden they're considered to be fraudulent? I don't get that. I think it's it's pretty poor on the storyteller's part. Yeah, I was thinking the exact same. So, JD, I think we're running parallel here, mate. How can they be so ignorant? People seem to have selective amnesia when it's convenient to the plot in this film. So there's the example there, like you say, and I get it to an extent with youngsters because, you know, there's, there's the whole thing, like when a, a political ideology takes over a country, it only takes a couple of years to come through because it comes through the education system and the youngsters who don't know any difference. So I get all that sort of thing. But the adults, for goodness sake, I mean, nobody seems to believe them. Uh, and in some cases, it's most egregious, like the mayor, because he seems to not believe them Hold on a sec. What happened five years ago? Can you not remember everything that happened? Um, I did notice that. And the judge, of course, I'm sure we'll talk about the courtroom scene, but the judge as well, uh, and some of the words he says, it it just seems like this city of millions of people, only a few people remember what they did, and then the ones who need to remember don't remember because, like we say, it's a poor poor storyteller or poor plot, or... um, if they did know and if they did remember, then that would somehow cause a, uh, a cause a problem with the plot. So they conveniently forget. So, yeah, it's quite poor at times that I agree. But some of the other lines that they, the obnoxious kid um, who approaches them, he also says that's why you went out of business. So we get a bit of a clue now that, yes, not only are they going to kids parties, but the Ghostbusters 
aren't functioning anymore, that, or at least in the capacity that they were in the first film. And I thought one of the interesting lines was delivered by Winston when they get outside and, and they're kind of getting back into the car. And he says, years from now, kids won't even remember who we are. And I thought that was really interesting. And, and in fact, it's kind of prophetic because I don't know if you've seen the trailer for the new Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters Afterlife. I have, yeah. The kids don't know who the Ghostbusters are. Um, and obviously, if we if we think that it, the Ghostbusters, if this really happened, everyone would know. You, you'd like to think they would. But no, I thought that was a really interesting line. But we're already starting to get the seeds as to where we stand with the Ghostbusters anyway, aren't we? Yeah. The, and again, talking about sort of hip ideas that, that the film has and almost self-referential, which I, no, I noticed an awful lot of back years ago. I used to, oh, it's a copy of itself. It's a, you know, copies it up. I think deliberately clever at times where they're being self-referential. So this idea that they are washed up and, you know, five years on, they're, um, they're doing kids' parties. That's a, that's a great setup. But also a great setup is the fact that at the very end of the first film, we saw them when we talked about this in the last podcast, coming down to the hero sort of welcome outside of the building, even though it's gone from nighttime to daytime on the way out. But the thing is, we it's almost like at the end we think happily ever after. But no, this is the real world that the Ghostbusters live in. And do you know what happened after they did that, after they blew that building up? They got sued. So that's a really nice little touch. You know, it wasn't a happy ever after kind of thing. They had to face the consequences of their actions. I wish they would have played on that a bit more. If I was to think something similar happened, let's say in, in real life, there was so much public support for the Ghostbusters. It would have been like the people versus the state, you know, and you could almost imagine a montage, the Ghostbusters faces on Mount Rushmore. They should have played on it. It just never materialised. In fact, the people of, of New York seem to have the same opinion of, the enforcers of the Lord. It's like nobody likes them almost. Yeah. And um, this idea as well, JD, of um, the events happening in the real world, it reminded me of uh, the Dark Knight at the start of the Dark Knight when you've got people going around as the Batman in hockey pants, obviously the famous <laughs> But do you see where I'm coming from with that? You know, in the real world, this is what happened. And if you're going to extrapolate that further, you could talk about Watchmen for example, and the, obviously the fantastic uh, graphic novel by Alan Moore. Film's all right, TV series is good. But the graphic novel itself, what if you took these superheroes, these costumed heroes, and put them in the real world? What would the real-life consequences be? Love that. It could be a pod podcast all of its own. Not long after that, we see Dana again, and she's visiting the Institute for Advanced Theoretical Research. And we finally are reintroduced to Egon, who, uh, I don't know if you noticed it, but his hair seemed to have reached new heights in this film. <laughs> now, JD, I think we need to start coming up with our own little lingo for this, because this is a terminology that I'd like to call the, the problem of Egon's hair. My theory goes that sometimes, to appease the audience, the filmmakers knowingly, especially with the sequel, will do things that reference itself or backtrack on things to do things differently to capitalise. So the example here is Egon's hair. So Egon's hair has now jumped, as you rightly said. He's gone from this sort of messed up hair to something like, I don't know if you saw the the late 80s rap band Kid and Play. The guy had like a really big high uh, flat top type thing. But this this thing, I mean, it's huge. When you look at the real uh, the, the real Ghostbusters, which was, made, which was the cartoon series made between the first film and the second film, He's got this huge uh, blonde 
quiff. You take things because the TV series was popular and then go and use them or put them in and somehow to try and um, appeal to people. And um, we can talk about that with Slimer and Janine and all of that later on too. It, it, it's littered throughout this film, isn't it? But Egon's running an experiment when we first see him uh, to see if human emotions actually affect their physical environment, which is kind of a bit of a nod as to where this film's going. It was quite an amusing scene because obviously it's quite sinister what Egon's doing. He's He's got this couple going through, is it like a divorce counselling? And he's turning the temperature up in the room and things like that. Um, it was quite amusing anyway, but it was, uh, yeah, a little bit of a nod to where we're going with the slime, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that, that idea of negative emotions and what they can do to us and how they can be bad for, for people and for society and on the whole, these are some of the themes that run through the film. But yeah, I just I just love how he's taken part in this experiment and it, it it's quite an unethical experiment when you think about it because those people don't think, that actually do think that they're, they're there for something else. So obviously there goes informed consent out of the window when it comes to ethics. <laughs> And obviously Egon's doing it with, with the big smile on his face, which he always seems to have, you know, and, and he says uh, later on, just towards the end of that scene, he's got some great lines, Egon, actually, in this film. Um, very deadpan. They have a little girl with a, uh, a teddy, no, is it a dog? A puppy. A puppy. And then his last line at the scene is very good. Uh, let's see what happens when we take the puppy away. <laughs> <laughs> But we get a little bit of a nod, um, a bit more to the story, because Dana says that she doesn't want Venkman to be part of the investigation into this moving pram. And we find out that they didn't part on good terms and they kind of lost track of one another. In fact, we find out that Dana got married and then a marriage that subsequently ended. So straight away, we're starting to get more nods as to what's actually gone on here. Yeah, again, maybe because this film was made five years and it could have been 15, maybe. Um, you know, build up to my idea that it was maybe a little bit too ahead of its time. She's managed to get with Venkman, be with him long enough to uh, go through a, a breakup and miss him, get married, have a child, and become divorced from the father of this child. All of this has happened within the space of five years, so I, I don't buy it. That child's about 18 months, maybe. It just seems like a, a a very short time scale for all of this to happen. And also as well, um, I don't know where they were going with this. I don't even know whether, whether they knew where they were going themselves with it. But Dana seems quite firm to begin with. She doesn't want Venkman to have anything to do with it. Very quickly, she's asking, does he mention it? Or something no, like that? No, I think she, she says something along the lines of, does he ever ask about me or something like that? That's it, yeah. And she smiles. Yeah, so there's obviously a spark between the two of them, and and I do like the spark between the two of them, and the chemistry um, in this film is developed upon. That's a that's a that's a good thing about it. Um, Builds up. It is. Speaking of Venkman, he is now the TV host of a show called World of the Psychic, <laughs> um, which is kind of a a bit of an in joke to uh, something that was said to him in the in the first film. I think Dana says that he is looks he's more of a game show host. Uh, and, and so, well, it's not so much a game show, is it? He's more of a, just a TV presenter, isn't he? But what did you think of that little change in direction? Uh, well, watching the film again recently just reminded me of, of I mean, the one thing that stuck up, stood out when I was a child was his jacket. That sort of like dog tooth uh, blazer that he's wearing. <laughs> I think the pattern's called dog tooth. 
um, like a tweed type thing, isn't it? <laughs> He's so cheesy um, and deliberately so. But I think here we see our first reminder of, or rather a parallel scene to the first film. So we see him doing this game show, which is very much, oh, sorry, not game show, he's game show host. <laughs> uh, we see him doing this show, which is very similar to this, the investigation, bogus investigation he's doing at the very uh, the start of the first film. He, he feels a little different to me in this film, Bankman. And I, I got more of a, a Frank Cross from Scrooge vibe from him. Um, I don't know if that's something to do with the script or just maybe him evolving as an actor. Um, I just felt like he was, I mean, it got better, I think, towards the end of the film. But these early scenes, I felt like I was watching the Frank Cross from Scrooge. Um, well, but, just, just and, want to mention that, J.D., if I remember rightly, Scrooge was 1988 and this was 1989. So those films were probably done back to back. He could have even been filming them side by side. You don't know. Um, but we're soon introduced to the sequels version of Walter Peck. And he comes in the form of Jack Hardemeyer, who, does he call himself the mayor's assistant? Yeah, it's that guy, isn't it, from Wayne's World? Um, the carefuller. Yeah, he's one. Of, he always plays the sort of annoying uh, kind of uh, henchman, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. <laughs> yeah. Um, was he in, he wasn't in uh, Beverly Hills Cop. That was Judd Reinhold, wasn't it? Um, I'm trying to think what else I've seen him. Def- obviously, Wayne's World. But yeah, he's the mayor's assistant. Again, he fulfills the Walter Peck role. But again, he's another one who seems to forget. You know, he sees the, the Ghostbusters as a menace to society rather than a help. And obviously, he's the fall guy, isn't he, when the mayor needs him to be later on too, just like Peck. Certainly not as good as Peck, was he? No, no. I mean, there's a real a-hole kind of thing about Peck, whereas this guy's more just annoying, isn't he? Yeah. Um, before long, we find ourselves outside the New York Art Museum and we get our first glimpse of the painting of Vigo de Carpathian. Pathian, that's the pronunciation. And obviously we don't know at the time that this is going to eventually be our antagonist. But we also meet uh, Janosch, who um, seems to want the attentions of Dana. Yeah, Peter McNichol, who was in Sex in the City later on in the 90s, playing this sort of Eastern European type guy with a really annoying accent. He seems to uh, really, really be into Dana and will not take no for an answer. Yeah, he's creepy, isn't he? And I believe he took that uh, accent. I think he said his, um, what's the word I'm looking for? His inspiration for that was um, Metal Street from Sophie's Choice. Uh, I don't think he quite landed it, but that was that was what he claimed anyway. That was a film about the Holocaust, yeah? That's right. right. Um, if I remember correct, he was also one of the camp leaders in Adam's Family Values. He was, yeah, yeah. Camp, camp Chippewa. Camp Chippewa, yeah, I watched that recently. Uh, a Little Time in the Harmony Hut. <laughs> one of the first films I saw at the cinema. Though. We also see Vigo's painting move, so it's our first clue as to something's not right with this painting or the guy that's actually on it yeah it's it's so scary and the effort that was put into making the effects for this were incredible it was done by industrial light magic uh, george lucas's um, company i think ilm possibly or something to do with lucas arts or lucasfilm um but they done an incredible job in terms of that painting and 
um, sort of making it come to life and things. And I believe something towards the end of the film where the, the painting came to life and Vigo was meant to step out of the painting, um, they didn't end up doing. And that's why they went with, you know, the whole sort of floating head kind of thing towards the end. They changed it. Uh, maybe they didn't like how it looked, but it took a long time to film it because you can actually see on YouTube a clip of them filming the the actor. I think his name is Willem von Hornberg. Wilhelm, yeah. Wilhelm, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he, he's sort of stood there with his arms and, you know, it doesn't exactly help that the character's arms are sort of, you know, the sort of Holborn, Henry VIII type image, hands on hips. And you can imagine him filming for hours on end, stood there in that sort of position and everything. So, yeah, uh, yeah scary bad guys, very scary. I, when I was petrified when I was a kid. Yeah, right. I, you know what? It is very much like Henry VIII. I'd never thought of that. But um, if you've listened to the commentary on uh, Ghostbusters 2, I think they even talk about, you know, this painting. Um, and they don't even know where it is. I think it's just in the back lots of Columbia, just like sitting there. It's, it'd fetch a fair few quid, I think. No, um, I, I read um, there were two of them for the film. And one of them is now at the Lucas Film Ranch. Skywalker Ranch or something like that. Mm -hmm. And the other one is in Ivan Reitman's house. That's <laughs> I'm sure of it. Well, do you know, it's the kind of, the, the, did you say that there was in Ghostbusters 1? Or sorry, you said you went on a tour, didn't you? In New York and the sign was still in the old firehouse. Yeah, the sign for this film, the, the one with the, the ghosts with the, the sort of peace sign, two fingers up. Um, was just you could just see it through the window of the side of the fire firehouse. Crazy, Ray Stance finally gets introduced, and he is now working in a bookshop called uh, Occult Books, which I think is a little bit of a nod to his own private life. I think his am I right in thinking his family history? I don't know if it was his father or his grandfather was very much into the occult. So I'm kind of thinking that was pushed onto the script. That was the inspiration. Was that mentioned in the first film? I'm not entirely sure. I, I don't recall it, put it that way. But uh, that, that's what's happened to Ray anyway. And of course, Venkman walks into the shop and we see our kind of first reunion between the characters. Again, no Winston. Um, I, I don't know what why. We can talk about that a bit later on because again, he's still a little bit sidelined in this movie. But Venkman finds out that, of course, they're investigating the pram instance and he kind of pushes Ray to find out who they're helping. Um, and when he finds out it's Dana, they all then go to her apartment, and, and it's there we're properly introduced to the, the baby, who's called Oscar. Yeah, now the baby Oscar... <laughs> you, you know how in films they, they get kids, don't they, to, to look at something off-screen to, to distract them? Like, this is the most obvious example of that I find in any film I've ever seen, ever. The kid is always looking at something off the screen. It's never, the, do you see what I mean? And I know he's, he's an, you know, I'm not going to criticize the, the baby or babies because it's twins, but it's it's almost like someone's got a, a, a toy or a rattle on a fishing rod, yeah. uh, not quite behind the camera, but just to the left or just to the right. And that kind of kid's always looking off screen. Such a harsh critic, man. <laughs> you'd, have him, you'd have him down at the Razzies. <laughs> The, I believe it was actually played by twins. It was two kids. I think we found that. I, I didn't know that until this week when I was looking it up. Yeah, um, in the credits when you see, um, they do a sort of credit sequence where you see the characters, 
see the actors, their na- the actors' names, and then a clip from the film, or rather a clip from a scene in the film that's not actually in the film, so something they just filmed a little bit over. And you see the two boys side by side. Obviously, they do that in films because you've got young babies, you're filming for hours on end. You can't expect a young child to be in the one position or whatever. Um, it's not fair, it's not right, it's not ethical, it's, it's, it's no good. So they use twins uh, usually for this. So the other one I think of, top of the head, without thinking too much about it, it's Big Daddy. Um, the Is it uh, Sprouse? The, the Sprouse twins? One of them is now in Riverdale, um, Cole Sprouse, and he's been in a few things recently, but he was, or rather they, him and his brother, with the with a boy in Big Daddy. You're right, and I think the first time, the, the first example of that I can think of was Full House, and I think they used to use Mary Kate and Ashley, the Olsen twins, for the little baby. Right. I don't think I ever watched that one. So they, I, I do know of it. Um, so they weren't twins in that programme? It was just No. Ah, oh, okay, right. Just played by the both of them, um, but but back to the film. They went on first. They went on to have a, a successful award-winning career of their own as twins, didn't they? They did, but it's, interestingly enough, the sister now seems to be the, the big one of the family. She the fashion designer. Well, maybe, well, unless I'm thinking of the other sister then, but I'm thinking of the one who's in the Marvel Cinematic Universe All right. as a uh, Scarlet Witch. Must have just Here's where someone tells me that they just share the same name. It's actually not the sister. <laughs> <laughs> but the investigation in Dana's apartment and the investigation of Oscar eventually ends up outside uh, on the street. And we see Egon and Ray using their equipment. And they finally pick up some huge anomalies from the ground. And we're finally starting to make headway into the what, what's actually causing this, uh, these events or the events with the pram and it, it, whatever it is, it's under the ground. And of course, the Ghostbusters take it upon themselves to start be- digging up basically a New York busy street. <laughs> yeah, well, when I was a kid, I never quite got that scene, but they were actually just breaking the law by doing that. And uh, I, I, I was laughing my head off watching it again. I mean, they left poor Egon to dig up the road. She says something like, say, what have you been up to? She's digging up a road while you've been getting coffee. Um, and then obviously... <laughs> <laughs> they see that the police officer's there and Egon's kind of like, hi. <laughs> he doesn't know what to do. Uh, Benkman comes over, starts acting like a sort of uh, Brooklyn um, working class kind of guy, uh, you know, with the loud mouth, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then the police go away then and, and leave them be. Yeah, it's a, it's a great scene. And of course, we find out that it's not just pink slime seeping through the cracks of the floor, but an actual river of slime which uh, is flowing through the old pneumatic transit system. But I remember that scene very vividly. And I think it's obviously just the the visuals of this, like, highlighted pink goo. It immediately draws you in, doesn't it? It's it's the first time when the film kind of grabs you, um, when when Ray's getting lowered down. Yeah, the the pink goo, we were saying about the colours. I don't know whether that was uh, animated, maybe, and that's why it looks that distinct way when it's flowing as a river. Or, I don't know, and there's a few times in this film where I think, and obviously it's on the cusp of the 80s and 90s when um, digital effects first started to be used. I don't know whether they had used any digital effects in this film. Um, Actually, tell a lie, towards the end when we see Vigo's face change, I I think that that sort of a digitised kind of look, um, his face sort of all warps and stuff like that. So I think this film was just on that beginning of digital effects 
But following that, when Ray's being lowered, uh, he obviously, well, accidentally causes a power cut, not just to the streets, but seemingly to the whole of Manhattan. Um, everything goes off. And we talked about this in, in the last movie review. Uh, that leads to the scene where Janosch, who has now become enslaved by Vigo, who says that he needs a child. What, what does Vigo say? He needs a child to be reborn again? Bring... Bring me a child so that I may be born again, or, or something like that. Um, that's when he, the, the painting talks, isn't it? And he talks it is. him in, and he says something like, uh, "Command me, <laughs> uh, oh Lord." <laughs> um, <laughs> but the in his apartment, and that's when we have that horrible scene, don't we? It's absolutely terrifying, and, I, and again, I don't want to tread over old ground because I said this in the last review, but. I remember seeing it in the cinema. I don't remember seeing... I don't recall any other moments in the film other than this one. And, and, and obviously because it's so striking. Um, in fact, it kind of reminds me... Have you ever seen Poltergeist 2? I watched the first one recently. I'll have probably seen the second one, but I can't recall it off the top of my head. The first one's a better horror film, but I think the second one has some really scary moments. Probably the, one of the scariest moments I can recall in film. And it's where this Reverend Kane kind of approaches the door of the family's home and, and he kind of first asks to be let in and then almost starts demanding it. And if you watch that back, it is just horrifying. And it kind of reminds me of this because Yamosh isn't so much forceful. He's creepy. And I think the fact that there's, the power's been cut off to the city only adds to that. It was a really nice way of putting that scene together, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, he is creepy. Uh, and of course, when he's in the hallway, he turns away after Dana has rebuffed him again and again. Um, and then his eyes light up. And then he starts walking down the corridor with this sort of long coat on. I mean, that petrified me. It is, yeah, it was really good. But following the dig, we find out that the Ghostbusters have been charged for the illegal digging. And they turn to an old friend to represent them in court. Yes, we do, JD. It's our old friend, Lewis Tully, from the first film, who was an accountant in Ghostbusters 1. And now all of a sudden, because he's been to night school, he's now a uh, a, a lawyer as well. Um, so that got me thinking, actually, JD. Wouldn't, I mean, I thought of a little few tweaks for the storyline, perhaps. What if Lewis... Being the opportunist he is, which we know he is in the first film, you know, he says, I invited you to my party rather than friends because it was tax deductible. What if he was a lawyer now representing or trying to represent the city or rather not so much the city even, but random strangers who say, who lie, who are lying, saying that they were affected by what the Ghostbusters did five years ago. You like a sort of ambulance chaser thing. On behalf of course. Of now, I think that would be a great setup. That if he was almost like the Walter Peck type of character, it would have been interesting. I mean, the scene itself. I mean, we 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 say, don't we? I think it's fair to say that whilst Ghostbusters Two lacks some of the the wit of its predecessor, Lewis Tully's performance is still pretty excellent, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Obviously, the great um, interaction or banter that he has between him and Venkman where obviously they realise the screw, don't they, because of how bad he is. But there's a part where 
Venkman's in the witness box and he's feeding uh, Tully things to say. It's so well played, that scene. I was laughing. It is. I think the judge says, do you have any further questions? And he looks to Venkman and goes, do I? (laughs) 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 But we also hear that the Ghostbusters are under a restraining order that prohibits them from performing services as paranormal investigators. So um, it's great because it kind of leads into what I think is one of the few great memorable lines in the film. And Venkman's in the dock. And I can't remember the full quote, but he says something along the lines of, there are some things in this world that go way beyond human understanding. Um, Sometimes shit happens, someone has to deal with it, and who are you going to (laughs) call? And all of a sudden there's this reaction from the people in the benches and it's like, this is the first sign of the people that kind of still with the Ghostbusters. Yeah, yeah. It, it it really jogged my memory of that whole Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters when they come out of the building in the first film. And of course, we also see that the slime, which is being presented as one of the exhibits, we get a, a bit of a nod uh, that um, human emotion does actually have an effect on it. Um, and of course, we have this angry judge and every time he raises his voice, this slime starts bubbling and oozing out the top. Um, it's a really good scene. The judge seems to be like something out of the uh, out of the nineteenth century kind of thing, real fire and brimstone. And he's one of those people who you've seen uh, in lots of different things. And when I looked him up, you know, he's the kind of guy who plays doctor, 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 judge, doctor, doctor, sheriff, judge. You know that type of character. Military. Yeah, military. Yeah, general. Um, that sort of thing. I'm, just I'm pretty thought, sure he's in like Independence Day or Mars Attacks, some sausage. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought on a, another funny line there when when Lewis is um, is just finished giving his his uh, defence of the Ghostbusters, and uh, Benkman says to him, "Very good, Lewis. Short but pointless." <laughs> <laughs> Egon and Ray uh, mention a link, don't they, between Vigo and the slime? Um, I think, well, in fact, before we get on to that, I suppose we should talk about the ghosts that appear from this slime, don't we? Yeah, now this is where we this, the effects are, really do stand out um, when those two, uh, oh, what are they called, the, the Scaleri brothers? The, the Scaleri brothers. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that was probably one of your questions. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Yeah. Um, but the Scaleri brothers. The ghosts of these uh, people who are in the electric chair um, appear in the courtroom. Um, that combined with the effect of the wind blowing on the characters and the chairs flying around everywhere and the benches being lifted up above them, I think those effects still really stand the, set, stand the test of time, to be honest. The effects definitely do. And I think, as you say, the, the, the chairs going up in the air, I thought it was really clever. There was definitely a, an aesthetic change where I think, whereas number one was a bit more horror driven the ghosts that we see in the Scalady brothers was something a bit more what we'd expect to see from the cartoon yeah again this is this is the problem of egon's hair isn't it it's um you know the the, the, the cartoon characters of cartoon ish and that's very much what like they've become they've got these big white uh, wide eyes huge mouths sort of like a cackling type thing they do they do look like something out of a Halloween cartoon rather than uh, rather than the, the true I mean the horror of that first scene the librarian that it's horrendous although there are some horror I mean later on in the film when when the when the heads are on the spikes in the 
in the tunnel. I mean, that's quite horrible. But it's fortunate for the Ghostbusters that the Scaleri brothers do show up because in light of that, the case end up getting the case ends up getting dismissed. And before long the proton packs are back on. Yeah, I um, where they get where they put the gear back on. I always love scenes like that when I was a kid. I mean, you know the, the, the scene in Commando when he's putting all of his gear on and everything. I love that. And I love just seeing the, the Ghostbusters with the gear on because I had all of that stuff myself and just love doing that. Just the sound of them turning it on. Yeah. Great. Um, and little things like that just add so much. Well, not uh, right. And of course... They're not actually allowed to do it at first, are they? You know, the, 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 the judge says, you know, or rather, doesn't the judge say something like, do something? And then that's when Tully sort of slides into camera. And he says, my guys are still under judicial order. That blue thing I got from here. <laughs> I don't want my clients to expose themselves. And then Benkman pops up and he says, no, Your Honour, you don't want us exposing ourselves. <laughs> so the Ghostbusters end up catching the Scaleri brothers. Uh, and that is, of course, the cue for another montage. Um, and, and we have that famous line then in the middle of the montage by Janine who says, uh, very dry, yes, we're back, and the Ghostbusters are definitely back. Yeah, again, uh, Janine's had a bit of a change, hasn't she? She has, yeah, and again, we, we will probably say this a couple of times through the review, but it's another one that's driven by the cartoon. Um, what was your thoughts on the, the new Janine? She's quite um, more like a vixen, isn't she, in this film? Yeah. <laughs> She's changed quite a bit. It's interesting because the first film kind of hints towards a bit of a romance with Egon and it's kind of just thrown aside in this film and obviously we find out a bit later on that there's something a bit more with Lewis Tully but we can discuss that a bit later I suppose but in this montage we see that the ghosts it's funny isn't it it's like this one event triggers that the ghosts are all back or, or at least I suppose we can kind of credit that to the slime but ghosts are definitely back running through New York City aren't they? Yeah, um, we have, a, an, again, an, another montage in this film, this time to uh, run the MC Ghostbusters tune, I think. Again, showing the shift in times towards the 80s the, and how popular rap had become. Uh, it's a good montage. We see them going around. We also see, um, is it, it like, do you know, it could be later on. Is that when we see the ferret on the coat or is that later yeah. on? Maybe? I think it's the same scene, actually. I think, I'm not entirely sure. I can't was, recall, but... That was a scene I mentioned in the last episode, which was written for the first film, but was actually uh, made in the second. Although That's although, right. Although it was filmed outside the restaurant. No, not the restaurant. Uh, it was filmed outside the hotel that was in the first film. <laughs> <laughs> but we soon find out that the... Uh, psycho-reactive substance uh, responding to human emotion. And it's at this point we see that great little scene. I think this, it's, well, I'm going to talk about the toaster scene, but before I do, it's kind of one of the few scenes where we see the Ghostbusters together having a, a little bit of fun. And I think the film misses that, but we certainly have a lot of fun with this toaster scene, don't we? Yeah, you're right there, actually, JD. The, the, the scenes where they are together is uh, action scenes, aren't they? And especially when you, you count in the fact that Zedemore is often <laughs> nowhere to be seen inexplicably. And later scenes are in where they're locked up um, rather than just having fun together and relaxing, which we saw a little bit of in the first film when they first get together. 
Uh, but yeah, <laughs> when we hear the Jackie Wilson higher and higher and the toaster dancing around. And I wonder how they got that effect. Um, probably, I get probably some other fishing line really again. <laughs> well, I'm glad you said that because I was watching it and I was thinking, I was thinking to myself, how did he do it? And if you watch it back in slow motion, the toaster seems to have these little <laughs> legs, like little hydraulic little legs that push it or bounce it. It's quite simple, but it's quite clever. Uh, but yeah, it always cheers me up. Soon after, Peter Venkman uh, visits the art museum and Dana tells him that she feels like the painting is watching her. So she's now starting to get suspicious. We've already seen that Vigo, the painting, there's something not right. Uh, and all of a sudden, Dana again is, is the focus of this danger, a bit like in the first film. Um, and this kind of culminates in the bathtub scene, which I thought was really good and, and really creepy and quite good effects as well. Yeah, so just, just before that, um, you mentioned Benkman. Is that when he's got the, the camera and he's saying stuff like, uh, you know, give me a, give me a, give me a best shot, you know, like that sort of Austin Powers type thing. Um, I think that does come a bit later. I think. Later, is it? Oh, okay. The, yeah, the, the scene with the bathtub, I'll have to be honest, GD, it put me off having a bath for uh, quite a long time. 25 years. Yeah, yeah. I've only just got over <laughs> it now. <laughs> the... Yeah, it, no, it genuinely did. I, re, I can recall now, even as we talk about it, really being terrified of going into the bathroom on my own because of that. I mean, God, I must have been about three, four years of age at the time, so fair enough. Maybe a little bit older. Five. <laughs> Egon and, and Ray mention, uh, I think for the first time, or at least the first thing we hear, of a link between this slime and, and Vigo. Um, and this is obviously when they all head to the art museum together. And I think that's the scene when Venkman's taking the pictures. But it's also the scene where Ray sees something because he, he climbs the ladder, doesn't he? And he gets like a bit more of a closer look. And I can't remember exactly what it is he sees, but I think Vigo's eyes glow, don't they? Yeah, he can't. Um, he's sucked into it and he's got he's mesmerised by it. He is again later at the end of the film, isn't he? But the photographs that Venkman takes, um, there's a scene, isn't there, where uh, Egon and Ray start to uh, analyse these pictures in the red... Is it a red room, they call it? A dark room. The dark room, that's it. Um, and they finally, well, they uncover this river of slime, don't they, on these pictures under the head of Vigo? So they, they, it's the first confirmation that we know that the slime and Vigo, there's the link. Yeah, and then those same photographs just spontaneously combust, don't they? Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about some of the... Um, we can talk about favourite scenes later. I'm not saying that this is one of them, but the director, Ivan Reitman, did say that this was added in the reshoots um, as well as the heads on the spikes. Okay. Because I think after watching one of the first edits of the film, it was so driven towards comedy and so driven towards Dana and Venkman's relationship that he actually forgot about the thrills of scaring people. And um, even with these additions, I still think it lacks those scares of the first one. But yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I don't know if you can tell that it's kind of added in scene, um, but it, it was something that it was added in in the second round of reshoots. Oh, okay, well, I, I, I'd never noticed and I never knew that. Thanks, JD, that it was added in. Um, something that did strike me about that scene, though, you know when they put the, the photograph into this machine thing, and they talk for a little sec few seconds about what, takeaway they're going to have that night. I don't know. It's almost like the, 
Is it is it like is it meant to be saying like they're so that's their life? They're like a married couple because they're kind of just arguing or not arguing, but just tossing up which which uh, takeaway they're going to have that night. Uh, should we have Thai? Oh no, it's too spicy. Should we have pizza? You know, I think he says like, oh, I had pizza yesterday. So it's that kind of uh, relationship dynamic that it's an evening time. These two guys are in a dark room. They've got nothing else to do, nothing better to do. And they are that it, they need each other, don't they? I kind of seen it as an attempt at comedy. It's like I did notice this line when I was watching the film, and uh, I kind of get the humor in it. It's like, yeah, we're going to start off with all these luxurious meals, we're going to just downsize it to just for pizza. I don't know why they added it. it, it wasn't so good that it needed to be script worthy, but it, it kind of draws your attention, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Um, so we then see the Ghostbusters talking about following the revelation that the Slime and Vigo are linked. They want to find out what the source of this river is. And it's there where we see Ray, Egon and Winston um, go down into the old subway or the old lines to try and find the source of the Slime. And of course, Venkman doesn't join them because he's going on a date with Dana. So it's the we're starting to get the rekindling of the romance as well. Yeah. And again, you know, you want to be seeing that sort of thing, domestic drama. That's you know rekindling of romance. Uh, okay, yeah, there's a, there's a chemistry between the two of them, but come on, we want to see some ghosts. We want to see some horror. We want to see some action. We want to see the Ghostbusters busting ghosts, not you know, uh, Benkman and trials and tribulations of his dating life. Yeah, and you know, look, I, I'm not saying that I'm against any love story in, in films that they always can be a great plot or subplot the Ghostbusters without Venkman it, it's kind of like Toast without Butter yeah he is the, the an anchor of the film I did say anchor <laughs> the actual scene in the subway though um, uh, I remember in my early years watching this film that one always stood out to me uh, and i tell you what bit I thought was really good not the, the Phantom Train or the heads on the spikes. I think the, the creepiest part of that scene is when they start to shout and we start to hear the echo. And for whatever reason, we don't hear an echo for Winston. We just hear this horrible sound effect. Winston. <laughs> it was one of the few really scary moments as a kid watching this film. I don't know if you agree. Yeah, yeah, because again, it taps into something that we just don't know about. Talked about it during Nightmare on Elm Street. Fear of the dark, the, the great unknown, what's hidden in the distance. And also because of the fact that they're treating it like fun, aren't they? They're saying, yeah. the name, hello, hello, hello. And then Winston's got this big smile on his face waiting for his turn. And of course, he gets that. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Winston gets shafted every time. <laughs> but ultimately they find that the, they, they do find the River of Slime um, and of course Winston gets dragged in whilst trying to get a sample uh, well is he getting a sample, is that what he's trying to do? I think yeah has he got some sort of test tube and then he gets pulled in um, interesting enough in that scene JD actually, uh, as Winston's being pulled in, the, the other two are trying to stop him and I, hear, I listened to this a few times uh, Egon says as he's trying to pull Winston back in Ernie at some point, which, ah. yeah, which is actually obviously Annie Hudson, the the, the character, uh, the actor who plays the character. 
you, you know, you'll be surprised how often that happens in films. I think there's a scene in The Goonies when Mike says uh, about his big brother, who's played by, I can't even remember the guy's name, but the one who ends up playing Thanos in The Avengers. But I think he shouts his real name. So it, these things happen, but obviously in the world of editing, sometimes, you, you know, they just slip by. Yeah, the guy who was in... Um... Played the younger Tommy Lee Jones in uh, Men in Black. Josh Brolin. Josh Brolin, that's it. Yeah. He calls him Josh in the film. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the ultimately uh, get the well, they jump in, don't they, after Winston, and um, they eventually emerge from the, the the manhole in the middle of the the street, covered in this pink goo or pink. Again, it's a watered down pink. Don't even notice in this scene. It's a bit more beigey, isn't it? But they start fighting with one another and, and we can see the, the negative effect that the slime's having on them. But they find out that the river of slime flows directly to the art museum. And here's our final link to Vigo. But they also burst into the party, don't they? Peter's date with uh, Dana. And it leads to a, another arrest. Is this the third arrest in the franchise so far? <laughs> You know what? They got they got more charges against them than I don't know what. But yeah, again, they walk into a fancy restaurant where the people in the fancy restaurant um, seem to have no respect or any clue as to who they are. Again, selective amnesia sort of thing. Venkman's on this fancy date with Dana, obviously trying to impress her. Uh, but yeah, and the guys come in all excited with themselves and everything. So I like the fact that they crashed his date. It's almost it's almost like. Um, he's crashing. They're crashing the dates on my behalf as the moviegoer. Going, yeah, I don't want to see any of the state and stuff. I want the more uh, paranormal thing, you know. <laughs> it felt like something we would have seen in the first one. It, it got the right vibe, didn't it? With that. But following the arrest as well, we also have the great Bobby Brown song overplaying the arrest. Bobby Brown, uh, husband to be, or maybe was husband, or was with Whitney Houston at this point. He was, in, when he was younger, he was in a band called New Edition. When he went solo, uh, his solo style was very popular at the time, um, starting with the likes of Janet Jackson and Paula Abdul, and it was called the New Jack Swing. And that, that New Jack Swing sound, I think Prince did an, did an album um, with it. It was very, very popular for a very quite a fleeting time. Uh, in the late 80s and early 90s before house music. But it's a very distinctive sound with sort of, well, this song sort of epitomises the genre, really. It's got those synthesizer stabs and a uh, sort of uh, drum machine, hip hop slash soul uh, feeling to it. And like I say, it was called New, New Jack Swing. Yeah, you can definitely feel its presence in, in the sequel for sure. But following the arrest, the mayor unlike the first film, is not on the side, is he? And in fact, he leaves them to this assistant, Jack Hardemeyer, who sees to it that the Ghostbusters are not just kind of taken away, but placed in straight jackets for analysis and observation. A bit of a stretch, don't you think, Jack? <laughs> yeah, again, you know, five years ago, these guys uh, saved the city. Of course, these ghosts and, and supernatural things exist. The city owes them a favour. Why would they be taken away in these straitjackets? I mean, maybe that's a theme, I guess. Um, if we look at sort of try and analyse it on a deeper level, maybe um, it's this idea that they couldn't interfere with the mayor's political ambitions because 
the, the mayor is or this guy says you know you're running for re-election next year we don't we don't want these guys interfering with things so I guess it's a whole commentary isn't it on on how um p- politicians try and present a polished image so much so that they'll hide anything that's a bit embarrassing or inconvenient such as the fact that the mayor did place his uh, trust in the ghostbusters last time around but for us watching it back, it, it, it just feels like a bit of a disservice to the first film and everything that happened. Self-referential, a bit hip and a bit meta on one hand, on the other, a bit of a rehash. The film straddles that constantly. But whilst the Ghostbusters are locked away, uh, Janosch seizes the opportunity to come for Oscar. And I know we said this when we talked about uh, Ghostbusters 1, but again, it's a, it's a creepy scene, isn't it? I know it doesn't have the same uh, effect watching it as an adult, but I, I remember being quite frightened by that scene. I think it was the long, outstretched arm that grabs the baby as uh, as Oscar's walking along the edge of this building. Yeah, firstly, it's the child and peril aspect of it, which is scary and frightening. And, you know, no one wants to see that in films. But secondly, the, Janusz as a ghostly nanny flying through the air and then that whole arm, um, oh, it's it's horrible. It, it really is frightening. Um, and, and then in that scene as well, or just after that scene, or just during it, is, you know, we've talked about how Janine has changed as a character. But her and uh, Tully seem to be sort of getting it on with one another. But even while the child's in danger, I think they go back to having a little smooching session and, I think that betrays the characters a little bit because I think those characters have got a bit more heart than that. You know, I don't, I don't understand why anybody would do that and not these characters because we've come to we've come to like them. They were just overly goofy. Yeah, yeah. I was um, overly horny, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the slime then starts to uh, seep out of the museum. Uh, there's that great scene where it kind of spills over the top of the doorframe. Uh, I don't know if that... Was, uh, reminded you of anything? It was reminiscent of a, a film earlier in the decade. Uh, I'm thinking Stanley Kubrick. I um um oh the Shining. It was the no, first no. thing I thought when I seen that was the Shining. Um, but this slime obviously ends up taking over the entire museum, and of course it's it's all over the city. And then we see um, another, I suppose you could call it a montage, uh, where these like. People are running out of the movie theatre, and I think that's when we see the woman with the fair coat, and of course the great, the great scene with the Titanic just coming into the harbour. Yeah, um, they they have a phone call at the city hall, and they say, you know, we got the port authority on the phone. Uh, they say the Titanic's just come in, and then you see the guy say, "Better late than never." Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if you noticed JD. I don't know if you know him. Uh, not very well known to British audiences, but. Um, you know, to geeks like us, um, it's actually Cheech Marin, who's uh, Cheech and Chong. Um, Cheech and Chong, yeah. He's in it. That's a little cameo appearance that he's got in there. It's one of the, um, I think, Ghostbusters doesn't do it often. I think if you think back to the the ghost lady at the start of Ghostbusters 1, it's a, it's a real human lady, isn't it? And then following that, it's like ghoulish things. Um, and, and I think it's the same era, that we don't often see human ghosts. I think there's one instance of a jogger going around Hyde Park, isn't it? And he's checking his pulse. <laughs> yeah, they trap him, don't they? Uh, just an interesting yeah. note on the, on the Titanic, JD, actually, I, I believe it had been discovered on the uh, the, sea, the, the, uh, uh, the bed of the Atlantic in 1986. 
Um, I don't think at this point they knew uh, what the damage actually looked like. So in this film in 1989, obviously made through 87, 88, it has this huge gash at the front of the boat. Um, but actually we know now that Titanic had more of a sort of a, a thin sort of wound across its, uh, across its side, which was what caused the sinking. Um, uh, and also, just for extra geek points, um, Vigo is, where's Vigo from? You said it earlier on, Begins of the Sea. Oh, is that where he's from? Carpathia? Carpathia, right. Well, the Carpathia was the ship that rescued the survivors of the Titanic, the ones who were... Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Oh, nice reference. Um, and, of course, now that New York City's overrun again with ghosts, uh, the mayor loses this uh, amnesia that he's been suffering with, and <laughs> he, he, wants to, he once again calls upon the help of, of the Ghostbusters, and they're back. Well, they're, at least they're, they're released, aren't they, from being held... Um, and, and it's at this point... Sorry, just worth mentioning, just like they were released from prison last time. Yes, um, but they kind of get together, don't they? And I, I don't think the proton streams are working against the slime, are they? Um, it's not powerful enough. So they start to talk about something else, something the city can get behind. A, a symbol, I think Egon says. Yeah, but before even any of that, just shows how ungrateful the people of New York are, JD, because you know the way they... Uh, they're combining the streams to actually attack this uh, shell of slime. <laughs> Do you know what I'm going to say? The people you start booing. <laughs> you start booing. Five years ago, these people saved your lives. Now they're the only hope that you've got, and you're stood there booing them because their machines aren't working quite hard enough. What are you doing? You're just stood there. <laughs> and, of course, when they say symbol, what they actually mean is... Uh, well, they look at the license plate of the Ecto-1 and see uh, Lady Liberty, which, of course, is a rallying point for uh, the uh, immigrants who came to the United States, uh, the gift of France to the people of the United States, if I remember rightly, on uh, the occasion of its uh, centenary, 1876. But the Statue of Liberty, when, when, I suppose when you first see the film, you're like, what do you mean? I, I don't get it. Um, but, of course, they take the same approach that worked on the toaster. Um, and, and they cover it with, uh, what do they call it? Positive slime? Good slime? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They start spraying the inside, the, the structure of it, and then they start walking the a Statue of Liberty around, just like very much in effect, similar effect, similar look to the Marshmallow Man. Did you notice that they were using a SNES controller? I did, actually, yeah, it was good. And, of course, they also are, you've got in the background, your love keeps lifting me higher. By Jackie Wilson. It's it's a very memorable scene. I think when you're a kid watching that that scene of uh, the Statue of Liberty walking through New York, it doesn't have the same presence as the Marshmallow Man. And I think you know I I talked in the last episode about that introduction to the Marshmallow Man, and you kind of see his face going between the buildings. It's great. I think you kind of lack that with this one. Uh, it, it it's still quite good. I think you know. For 1989, the effects of the Statue of Liberty walking through, wading through the, the harbour, and then obviously walking through the city, it, it's still quite good. Well, uh, what did you think of it? It's um, I mean, I thought, again, is it a rehash? Is it a reference to itself? Like, in the Back to the Future 2 sense of things, ref, you know, doing things in a different way. It's a man dressed up uh, in a costume, and I, you can see his face quite clearly at some points in it. Um, but what I think, though, JD, I think you see, I think you see too much of it. That's part of the problem. Uh, unlike the Marshmallow Man, who we see glimpses of, we see the Statue of Liberty in full quite a bit. I mean, she you knows she 
like smash a car and they sort of shout down, oh, sorry. And then there's the gag, isn't it, about um, maybe they should have cushioned the feet. Um, Egon says, I don't think they make Nikes in air size. <laughs> but it's like, it's not a carbon copy of the first one, but the template's very much the same, isn't it? And it, this kind of just caps it all off. It's the point when you think, oh, they're kind of going over old ground here. Yeah, I mean, even, you know, you mentioned the scene before when they're in the psychiatric ward and not the prison like the first film. But there's even a scene where just after that, they all get together with the mayor. The sort of henchman of the mayor gets the sack. Um, Winston says something to the mayor. Not as good as the line from the last film, though. But, you know, it's, it is, it's, 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 as the film progresses, it becomes much more of a carbon copy of the first one. And it just feels a little lazy, I feel, towards the end. No, I agree. But, of course, whilst this is all going on, Lewis Tully has um, had a bit of a pep talk, hasn't he, from uh, Janine. And he's soon getting suited up as the fifth Ghostbuster. <laughs> yeah. Uh, complete with uh, earmuffs. <laughs> Lady Liberty ends up breaking through the roof or the ceiling glass, doesn't he? Of, or doesn't she, should I say? Of Well, he or she, because it's a man playing, you said. Uh, but ends up breaking through the glass of the art museum and the, the Ghostbusters come down on the ropes and finally we get to the, the confrontation with Vigo. And of course, there's this scene, isn't it? I can't remember how long into the confrontation it is. The baby must have been terrified during the filming because Vigo, or the guy who plays Wilhelm, um, I, I think he may have passed away now. I think he died a couple of years ago. And um, I, I kind of don't want to knock the guy, but he's very scary features, very scary looking. And he's holding this baby and, and he's not just looking at the baby. He, he, he's almost grunting and he's pulling these faces. The baby must have been absolutely terrified. Yeah, I mean, obviously the baby's um, looking for its mother. Bigger. He's, he's got this uh, middle-aged man in a weird costume pulling all these mad faces and he is a scary, you say, scary-looking guy, isn't he, just to look at? He looks tough. He looks mean. Probably a nice guy. And, he, and he's not. it's not a doll. You can actually see that it's the proper baby in, in the hands of Vigo. It's definitely the baby. It is. Outside, of course, the people of New York City start to cheer up, I suppose, that the past Bowen now, they've all started to put their arms around one another and they start to sing Old Lang Syne. Yeah, and again, this film, for the most part, is set during Christmas. But did you notice anything Christmassy about it at all? Not at all. In fact, you actually didn't realise it was you know New Year until towards the end of time. It just creeps up on you. It's like, okay. There's a couple of scenes where there's uh, wreaths, uh, advent wreaths on the, on the doors of houses. But that's about it. New York in the run-up to Christmas is famed for it. People go every year, don't they? To see yeah. New York at Christmas. Look at it in Home Alone too. I mean, it's it's like something magical, but we don't see any of that in this film. And again, it feels like it was just a setup, just so they could have the event of New Year at the end of the film. Um, again, maybe because New Year's a time when you know strangers greet one another, you know, do the conga line in the street and that sort of thing. So. But this good will on behalf of the people of New York seems to be kind of helping the Ghostbusters in their fights with Vigo, who, who ends up transferring into this horrible, beastly creature. It's quite horrible, I think, when you're a kid seeing that. It's, it's, it's not very nice to look at. 
In fact, they, they possessed Ray, don't they, at one point? Um, which is yeah, a bit strange. Ray's does that thing again where he's looking at the, the, the painting and he's drawn in by it. He's mesmerised by it. Yet that Vigo with the, the the makeup on is quite different from Vigo in the in the film. I think that had something to do with the fact that those scenes were filmed later or changed later or something like that. Um, so he looks different as, as a result. Dan Aykroyd's got a great character face, hasn't he? Those expressions he pulls are great. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he's, he's, he's got that face, hasn't he, for, for comedy, definitely. Um, speaking of which, actually, I know we've talked about how, uh, Egon's haircut, but they, they all look pretty similar in the second film. But if you notice, Dan Aykroyd has changed an awful lot between the first and second film. I don't know what it is, but just notice he looks a lot younger in the first film. Uh, maybe he had the tough five years. <laughs> maybe coming off the drugs. <laughs> but of course, the blast Vigo don't be back into the abyss. Um, the the save Ray with the, the the good goo, if you want to call it that. And of course, at the same time, Lewis is outside taking credit for seemingly what he thinks to be is he, he believes he's defeated it himself, doesn't he? Um, he stood there with the gun. Uh, and that's when everybody cheers him. Everybody says, you know, he's the hero because the Ghostbusters have, have done the job inside and it looks like he's done the, he's done the work outside. So that, that was good. And the paintings change. You've got the Ghostbusters in these togas with the, the baby and everything's cheer. And of course, they come out to the hero's welcome and, and, and the Ghostbuster theme. Yeah, I mean, that, that painting, goodness me. That's so ridiculous. <laughs> it's just preposterous, it really is. Why they've got togas and the laurel wreaths and that. <laughs> it's so silly. Who knows what papers it served. But without further ado, J-Dog, let us move on to our Did You Know round. Did You Know. Okay, uh, so the role of Vigo was played by, uh, we, we mentioned this forename for earlier on, Wilhelm von Hamburg or Hamburg. Uh, but unfortunately for Wilhelm, the voice of Vigo was dubbed by none other than Max von Sydow. Uh, now, Wilhelm himself didn't find this out, for, unfortunately for him, until he attended the premiere of the film. Um, and in fact, he was so angry that he got up and walked out. Uh, I thought it really poor on the filmmaker's part. Uh, it, it, it's one thing having someone dub over your lines. It's another thing not being told about it. I mean, that's a David Prowse Darth Vader moment, that really, isn't it? Um, it is, the late David Prowse, of course. I mentioned the clip earlier where you see Wilhelm um, filming for the for the, the scenes and the, the painting. His voice doesn't have this, it just, it, there's not a massive um, resonance with, with his voice when you listen. Um, and I know that's just someone filming with a camera and, and not with the proper sound and everything. But, you know, his strong German accent sort of gets in the way and his voice just hasn't got the same sort of bass as someone like, you know, obviously Von, Von Sydow or a, um, James a, L. Jones. James L. Jones, for example. So I can see why, I did, why they've done it. But, I mean, it's a bit bad form, really, to not even inform the guy um, because he's put his time into that and, you know, his hours and his family and pride into it and everything. And then... We don't even use his voice, just as just as actions. So, yeah, I mean, uh, a bit div, a little bit diverish, but you're still in a film, mate. You're still getting paid to read lines. You know, <laughs> you're going to a coal mine instead. 
<laughs> All right, Jake, Doug. Relax. <laughs> Here's another one. Uh, so creature and makeup designer Tim Lawrence um, was also in the costume for one of the Scaleri brothers, uh, Nunzio. Um, but the design for the brothers themselves was actually inspired by another Dan Aykroyd film from earlier in the decade. I don't know if you know which one I'm talking about. No. It was the Blues Brothers. Ah. They inspired the, the design for the Scaleri brothers. And it kind of, it's another little tie into the uh, first film because, of course, John Belushi was said to be the inspiration for Slimer. Uh, but there you go. At the beginning of the film, in the kids' party, uh, one kid that we talked about earlier in the review who goes up to Ray and Winston and says that they're full of shit. Did you know who that was? Yeah, it was actually one of my did you knows for you, JD. Yeah. It's, uh, it's go on, you tell me. You tell our... It's, it's Ivan Reitman's son, Jason, uh, who, of course, is helming the upcoming sequel, Ghostbusters Afterlife, <laughs> which is a nice touch. Uh, but he also pops up in another couple of Ivan Reitman films. I don't even know which two. Yeah, uh, you should have saved this for a Q&A question. Um, at the end of, towards the end of Kindergarten Cop, when Arnie's going around the school and the fire alarm's being set off by Chris, he's going around looking for him and he bursts into one of the rooms. And just as he bursts into the room, there's a, there's a teenage couple kissing on the couch. And uh, one of those, the, the lad is Ivan Reitman. Ethan Reitman to the same. <laughs> so he's also in Twins as well. Um, it, it's the scene when uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger finds out that it's one of his fathers is living nearby and it's the kid outside of the basketball. <laughs> Here's one which is uh, I thought was quite interesting and I kind of did a bit of research on this one. Um, the water around the Statue of Liberty is 62 feet at its deepest point between Liberty Island and Manhattan. Now, the Statue of Liberty itself stands at over 151 feet without the pedestal. So the scene where Lady Liberty is wading to the harbour is bogus. In fact, if that was based on those measurements, the water would only have reached the thighs. But of course, that wouldn't have made for a great scene, would it? <laughs> um, just for curiosity as well, um, if Lady Liberty is 151 feet, the Marshmallow Man was actually 112 feet. Oh, wow. Okay. These are incredible facts, J.D. Uh, one there you thing go. I say about the Statue of Liberty... I was most impressed. In fact, there were two things in particular that really impressed me to see with my own eyes. One was um, the Chrysler building and the other was the Statue of Liberty on the island itself. I just, I, I thought it was an incredible um, monument and I was fascinated when I actually saw it for myself. My memory of going to the Statue of Liberty was back in the 90s and I remember being on the ferry going over to the island and I, I, I didn't have, I don't think I'd had a lot to eat. And I remember going to like the, the, the shop on the boat and I remember looking up at the, the chalkboard menu and it was like bag of chips, like $1. I was like, oh, lovely bag of chips, a bit of salt and vinegar, a bit of ketchup. And of course they handed me a bag of crisps, <laughs> which, you know, forgive my youth, I was devastated at the time. <laughs> um, but anyway, did you have any trivia did you know for me? Oh yeah, definitely, JD. Um, funny enough, a lot of when I was researching, a lot of them made reference to the first film. Um, so, did you know then? Yeah, okay. So, JD, uh, the filming actually began in late nineteen eighty eight in New York, and they only had a sixty seven day shooting schedule, which might seem like a long time, but when it comes to making a 
a film, obviously, of this uh, sort of length and scale with the effects. Um, ILM, which is Industrial Light and Magic, who made the FX studio, found huge problems with lots of the effects. Um, the design for the Scaleri brothers, who we've mentioned already, had to be adapted several times because the concept changed. Vigo's design sh shifted so many times over the production. Um, the final look being changed up until the last minute, as we said. Um, and like the first film, ILM had to have people working overtime just to actually get their shots done. So you can imagine all of these different groups all working and then, you know, sort of coming together. It's fascinating, the, the whole movie process. But at the same time that they were working on that on that film, and, um, you know, they just they couldn't do any more. There were so many scenes, apparently, where, um, you know, there was one where there were lots of ghosts meant to have uh, sort of spill out of a famous building called the US Customs House. And they just, they had to ditch the scene because they just could, they were so full up with work that they just couldn't do it. Um, at the same time, they were also working on some other films. So we got uh, The Abyss, which was famous for its um, use of CGI, James Cameron film. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, The Babes, Field of Dreams, and Back to the Future 2. So they were busy. <laughs> yeah, and you know, we can say that some of the effects worked. Um, I think you can tell that, that there's not been as much, I wouldn't say effort. It, number one, some of the effects were great. I know we, we talked about the, the terror dogs not being so good, but I think you could, we can be a little bit disappointed five years after about some of the design choices that they made. And I think one of the obvious ones, of course, is Slimer, who I don't know why they changed. I know it was, again, it was a bit more of a nod to the cartoon, but I just didn't feel that. I'd keep the continuity. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, did you know that Bill Murray wasn't very happy with this film? Yes, I am aware of that, yeah. And I don't think he's alone. I think uh, certainly post-film, you know, even the director and a few people have come out and said, you know, they would have made some different choices. But, yeah, I think Bill Murray in particular is, is often voiced as is, is disapproval of the script. Well, he's actually summed it up quite well with this line. He said, those special effects guys took over. It was too much of the slime and not enough of us. And, we, of course, we said that in the earlier, earlier part of our review. It's like one of the best scenes in the entire film was the toaster scene. And it's one of the few scenes with the four Ghostbusters not in action. Yeah, we want the camaraderie, don't we, JD? 100%. Um, did you know, JD, we've talked about the Titanic, but they actually had a, a, another idea in their heads for what it should be. It was actually meant to be a different type of ship. Would you like to have a guess? Uh, well, I'll have a guess, and I think I've got this right because I'm sure I've read about this. It was the Hindenburg, wasn't it? Yeah, the Hindenburg, yeah, yeah. Oh, the humanity, <laughs> got that one, JD. <laughs> well, why did they change? Probably, probably for effects reasons, uh, maybe. I'm not sure. Well, I would have thought a, a, a blimp, maybe like the shell of a blimp, might have been a bit easy, easier to do than a, a ship with a big gaping hole in it. I don't know. Uh, maybe they wanted to do a blimp, but it hadn't been a good year for them. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Any more to add? <laughs> yeah, um, we mentioned Bobby Brown, um, and I didn't know this until I researched, and I never noticed in the film. He's in the film. He's actually the mayor's doorman. Uh, maybe you did see him in the film. I I can't quite remember it. Might need to rewind and watch that one. There's a scene when they're getting taken into the mayor's. Um, I think they've been. I don't know if they exit a vehicle and they go into this building. And there's this young guy, 
and and he does kind of. I'm sure he almost says it like he's a fan. I think he's got like a red coat on. You, you might remember the scene. Oh, um, I don't oh, know if that's him. Could be. And speaking of people who were in the film, but this is definitely one that you didn't see because the scenes were cut. But you know Eugene Levy or Levi, the the guy from uh, Jim's dad from American Pie. The great Eugene Levy, yeah. Well, he was actually originally in the film as Sherman uh, Tully, who was Lewis's cousin. And Lewis goes to him for help in getting the Ghostbusters out of the psychiatric ward. Um, but those scenes were cut, and as far as we know, they, they've not shown up anywhere, but they were filmed. I'd love to see these uh, extended thingos of the film, you know, just stored in a vault, and I'm not sure what condition they are, but I'd love to see it. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly, JD. But that wraps up my uh, Did You Know For You. Thank you for sharing them, J-Dog. Uh, but let's move on to some of our listener feedback. Listener feedback. Okay, the first one came in from The Force Is Strong With This One at The Real SP MACD, who said the following. Mood slime, slime blowers, Lady Liberty taking a walk, a dancing toaster, Ecto-1A, now um, we'll speak about that in a minute. Uh, they say that the car has, Ecto-1A has a marquee and a satellite dish, and it has the same formula for fun as the original. What's not to like? I remember seeing this in the theatres. A possessed Dre crashes Ecto-1A into Central Park, and Lewis hunts Slimer. And I think they're nods to some deleted scenes, which you can actually see on YouTube. I have seen some of the Lewis, Tully, Hunt and Slimer ones. Although I don't recall the Ecto-1. This tweet references it as Ecto-1A, and I don't know if this is something that I'm missing or maybe my memory's just not good enough, but um, is that something that you recall? I don't, JD. No, I'm sorry, I don't recall that. What about the car having the marquee and the satellite dish? Um, It's got, yeah, yeah. The, when, they, when they first go back in business, um, what does it say? Oh, it's, Way back or something? It does, yeah. And I think it's got a num- the number to call, maybe, but it's in sort of where it moves across. I guess it's called a marquee, isn't it? But yet it, I also noticed the satellite dish as well on top. The next tweet came in from Shannon S at Shannon524 one Hoping that's not your number, Shannon. Um, if it is, I've just read that I was on it. Too late uh, now. I, it is too late. I used to look at my sons when they had thoroughly made a mess on me and said, why am I dripping with goo? Still say it when I get messy to this day. Um, but I just laughed because this goo in the film, it just, uh, I, I wish they'd have stayed with a bit of consistency with that. But it, it was very iconic, the goo, wasn't it? And it's like, it's funny because Shannon obviously still refers to it to this day. And I still remember fondly getting the goo as part of like some of my toys. I think it was in like just some sort of pot. And I'm pretty sure I had a Slimer and you kind of squeeze the goo into Slimer and come out of his mouth. I can't remember, but um, people remember the slime anyway, don't they? Yeah. Um, when you mention the goo, the slime, um, the th- this is incredible. 30 years later, but, but you said it and I smelt it. Um, it had a very distinctive smell. And I can smell it as we talk right now. That That's incredible. That's brought back a flood of memories for me, that. I can remember it too. Um, next, we came in from Murder She Rothenberger 
at <laughs> Philip <laughs> at Philip underscore Rotten. I thought you might enjoy that. <laughs> Who said any pots? Wow, that's all. That's all. And and I think we can all agree that you know it was quite shocking the the new and and whether you'd say improved Janine. But you also went on to add uh, listening to episode one of Ghostbusters one. I had no idea John Candy was pegged for the role of Rick Moranis took uh, and as a Canadian the TV show SCTV was a childhood favourite where both actors were well known to me before they moved on. It's not something I'm familiar with SCTV um, I, I'm assuming CTV stands for Canadian TV, I'm not quite sure what the S is but yeah I mean Rick Moranis and John Candy of course two very fond Canadian and beloved actors yeah, it it was second city television, JD, um, and it and it was in the seventies and eighties um, in 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 Toronto. It was based. Um, funny when we mention uh, actors, and often people um, mix up Canadian actors with with American, or rather, think you know ones. They think they they think that they're American when in actual fact that they're Canadian. Great character actors and improvisational as well. I mean, uh, Rick Moranis, I believe, was part of an improv group. So obviously that, when, you know, you, when you learn your trade doing something like that, uh, you're on the spot in clubs and, you know, audiences can be pretty brutal, can't they, and, and things like that. So imagine that would you'd learn to cut your teeth doing something like that and you'd be more than set up for, uh, for, for filming. No doubt. Uh, Bong Ripper, Jack Tripper, one of our regular contributors at Libody said, personally, I love it, but I'm firmly in the part one is superior camp. That said, it's got problems, questionable green screen effects, but it's also got charm. I mean, does it get any better than Bill Murray saying, Viggy, 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 you've been a bad monkey. <laughs> you know, and I think, you know, towards the end of the film, we do start to see a bit more of the old Bill Murray. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think... He was a bit more Frank Cross than uh, Peter Venkman in this film, but you're still, everyone's still loves Bill Murray. He, he still delivered in many aspects, didn't he? Yeah, totally. Lionel Gilmore at LG16 Spear said, I watched it more than the first one. Um, and our last one was Anthony Quirk at Ant Quirk, who said, as a child, I found Vigo terrifying. And this is something you alluded to earlier on. Oh, he was horrible. I mean, it- he had a, a, a low sloping forehead, <laughs> um, you know, that sort of weather-beaten look about him. Um, the suit, the, the darkness and the, the evil sort of that he represented. Um, not as obviously evil as, you know, Goza, um, in the sense, you know, hellhounds with fire breathing out of the mouths and things like that, but what he represented. Also, funny enough, Benkman says at one point to him, doesn't he? Um, something like, "If you want to have, if you want to have, if you want to have a baby, go and um, go and make out with one of those hellhounds or something like that." <laughs> well, as always, uh, thank you to all our listeners for the for the feedback and contribution. We always appreciate it. But J Dog, it is time to put your knowledge of Ghostbusters two to the test. Q&A. Okay, J Dog, I'm going to fire you my three questions. Question one, before they turn the proton packs back on in the courtroom scene, 
Venkman Express is concerned about the fact that it's been a few years since they've been used. But Egon reassures him by saying that the power cells have a half-life of how many years? Oh, this is so frustrating, JD. You know why? Because last night I watched a programme documentary about uh, Chernobyl. And in that programme, the, 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 the people were talking and said that it would be 20,000 years before it was safe. But I don't think it was 20,000. They actually mentioned the year half-life as well, uh, the, the term half-life too. Um, 500? Well, you're far off, but it was 5,000. Ah, multiplied by 10. Not bad. Uh, question two. On the world of the psychic TV show, what date does Elaine believe that the world is going to end on? New Year's Eve? No, incorrect. You, you'll kick yourself here. It's February 14th. 2016 and of course Venkman follows it up with Valentine's Day bummer (laughs) (laughs) and finally question three in the scene at Ray's occult books what was the name of the book that came in for Venkman I don't know I'm sorry I'm gonna have to hold my hands up it was magical paths to fortune and power oh my goodness I think I made that none for six for your Ghostbusters Q and A. Yeah, terrible, isn't it? You can. You're not a true fan. My uh, powers, goodness me! I, I, you, you, you've chosen some stinkers there, though, JD. <laughs> Go on, fire, fire away. Okay, uh, we talked about it earlier, but in Egon's investigation at the start, and when we first see him, what are the couple? Well, what do the couple believe that they're really there for? Marriage counselling. Yeah, one one so far, JP. Okay, uh, when Venkman's hosting his psychic show, he s- sort of sums it up in a Jerry Springer final thought type thing. And he says, occasionally we meet a nice alien. Can you give one example of t- the two that he gives? Uh, both from E.T. The- e- 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 is one of them. Okay, E.T., yeah, one. Is the other one uh, Alf? No, no, Starman. Uh, which Starman. Was, which I, I can't help but think it's a reference to the fact that the film Starman was 1984 as well. It's the one uh, It's the one with Jeff Bridges in where he's the alien. Have you seen it? Yeah, it, uh, do you know, I haven't seen it since I was five or six years old. I just remember that the, the opening moments of that film have uh, stayed with me. It's, I actually need to revisit that, actually. It's a good film. Okay, I've got two more, JD. Will you permit me two more? Why not? I've already beat you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Egon's family didn't let them have toys. Ray asked if they had one toy in particular, and Egon says that they had part of one, and he fixed it or straightened it. What was the toy? <laughs> it was a slinky. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great line, though. It was a moment of inspiration in the script. <laughs> Okay, for this last one then, JD, this is why I wanted to say this one. I've got a number of sentences. Can you say the last word in the sentence for me, okay? Go on. On a mountain of... Uh, skulls. In the castle of... Blood. Oh. Death. I sat on a throne of... Well, is it on the throne of skulls? 
Oh, blood. Oh, 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 oh. oh, you're having a nightmare here, JD. What that was, Will. Now shall be. Oh, I'll give you that. What that <laughs> is, will be, no. More. Now is the season of... Uh, chime. <laughs> Something's just chimed. Was it your emails? <laughs> now, now is the season of death. Oh, you were very close, JD. It was on a mountain of skulls in the castle of pain. I sat on a throne of blood. What that was will be. What that is will be no more. Now <laughs> is the season of evil. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'd just like to thank Max von Sydow for his contribution to the episode. That was great. Well, everybody thought he passed away at a grand old age of 90-something, but he's still here with, live with us, JD. He is indeed. Uh, okay, let's um, move on and talk very quickly about your favourite scene. Favourite scene. Okay, JD, so again, this film, it's got that potential... There's something about it that's just not quite there. We'll talk about that in the legacy. So I, I really struggled for a favourite scene here. I'm, I, I, I eventually narrowed it down, though, to just two. And I'll wait until you've told me what your one is until I reveal my other one. But the one that I'm going to go with is the courtroom scene because it's, the, it's them, them together, coming back together uh, for the first time in years as a fighting force. If, I love the effects. I love the judge. I love the way the chairs move around. I, I just love how they defeat the the uh, the Scaleri brothers, and and I, and I just really like that scene. Uh, it reminds me of what Ghostbusters is all about. Yeah, I, I'm going to agree with you. And I know it's nice to always have different views, but I'm not going to lie. I think it's the one great scene in Ghostbusters too. I, I would have liked to have. I know we kind of give a bit of credit to the Scaleri brothers. I would have liked to have seen a, them being a bit scarier. Um, I think they were, they were they were a nice design. They were a bit cartoony, but it was still a good effect. But but the tension and and how they use the the anger of the judge ramping up the the slime and all that, and you know the momentum build. And we talked about how they used momentum and tension building in in the first one. And I think this is one of the few scenes. In Ghostbusters 2, where we see that done really well. So I share share that with you. And of course, we have the the, the comedy value of Lewis Tully. Um, so yeah, 100% the, the courtroom scene for me as well. Okay. I'm glad you said that, JD, and we are in uh, in agreement. The the other scene then was um, the, the train scene where Winston's hit almost with the ghost train. Uh, I, I, I love that. Um, the effect and his reaction when... <laughs> When Egon asks him if he caught the the locomotive number, what does he say? Sorry, I missed it. <laughs> no, that is good. And 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 the only one I'd add to that is the one we we said earlier with uh, Janosch going to Dana's apartment. I think those three scenes stand out, uh, and and I'll tell you why they stand out. It's the three moments in the film where there's a little bit of creepiness or tension. Um, because the film, we've probably picked out the three potentially scariest moments in the film. You know, possibly uh, you you might you might say that the stuff with Vigo towards the end is scary, and I'm not sure. Uh, but I think it tells us a little bit about what this film missed um, in that we we gravitated to the scares 
And it's, I think we needed a bit more of that. But let, let's go on and, and talk about Ghostbusters 2 today. Movie Legacy. So here we are. We are how many years now from 1989? Lots. <laughs> 32. Yeah. And um, people still know and love Ghostbusters predominantly because the first one's so good. And I think number two is it's still a beloved movie. It, it doesn't have... I think the general consensus is that it's not as good as number one, but it's got enough redeeming qualities for people to still kick back and enjoy it, hasn't it? Yeah, um, I, I loved it when I was a kid. When that film was out on video or was just released, um, I must have been about four or five, and some of my earliest memories are with those toys and that film. And I, I remember watching that film again and again and again. I was so into it. Um, and like I said in the last episode, I'd seen it a lot more than I had the first film. So my recollections were always of the second film in the Titanic and all that sort of stuff. So for me, it was beloved when I was a youngster. Watching it recently again, when in hindsight, uh, you know, as the uh, self-appointed critic for this, um, I picked up on all sorts of obvious d- different things, obviously, that I wouldn't have noticed when I was a child. So I enjoyed watching it again from that point of view. But, you know, you don't have to be a, a movie critic. Anyone can see objectively that the, the first one is much better. Would this have been better if it was made in 1999? Uh, putting aside the fact that the top uh, supernatural type film was The Matrix at the time, something just tells me that late 90s, uh, perhaps even early 2000s, a little bit of distance away from the first one, that whole self-referential and uh, doing things again and stepping outside of itself and looking at itself from a different angle, it could have worked at a much later time, um, maybe a little bit later than just the five years after it, because this this film doesn't feel like an 80s film. If you catch me drift, it's, it's moving towards the 90s and things are a little bit different, so it hasn't got that same kind of 80s feel, even though the soundtrack firmly puts it in that. That era, um, I do. I do think had it been made a decade later, things could have been a lot different. What we ended up with then instead was the the film, and then a massive load of speculation. Then until obviously the computer game two thousand and nine, uh, which was twenty years after the event. But in terms of film, we had to wait a little while longer than until uh, its namesake of twenty sixteen. And then, of course, we we have got a... It's billed as a sequel to Ghostbusters 2 in, in the form of Ghostbusters Afterlife. Um, uh, if you haven't seen Ghostbusters 2016, the old guard are there. Um, well, at least Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd and uh, Annie Hudson. I think they pop up, don't they? In fact, I think Annie Potts pops up at some point in the film. So there's a few old cameos. But, the, of course, I think she's the only one who plays herself the other Ghostbusters turn up as like cab drivers or, you know, they're not actually the Ghostbusters where I think, you know, if rumours are to be believed that if the old guard do show up in Afterlife, it will be as themselves. So it will be, in some respect, the actual sequel to Ghostbusters 2. And it, it's, it's difficult, isn't it, to think you had something as big and as powerful as a franchise as Ghostbusters, so iconic. A logo, it's a logo can do so much going for for a franchise and it's instantly recognizable. 
and we got two films out of it. It's really peculiar. Um, and, and listening to Ivan Reitman, he does kind of levy that at the second film and just said, you know, we missed the trick here. We took our eye off the ball. We put so much emphasis on other things that we kind of forgot what made the first film special. And what made the first film special is, yes, it was a family film. And yes, there was the genius of the guys playing the Ghostbusters, but it was also scary. And the second one doesn't have that. It has its moments. But, you know, Steven Spielberg, I think, once famously said, the ghost lady at the beginning of Ghostbusters 1, top 10 scares of all time. Ghostbusters 2, just... We talked about it right at the start. If you compare those two opening scenes, it's chalk and cheese. And I'm afraid to say, I really like Ghostbusters 2, but I'm afraid it, it sealed the deal for why there wasn't a number three. I, I agree. And I think you've put that really well, JD. Good, great summary. So without further ado, J-Dog, I'm going to give you the opportunity to give this a mark out of 10. Um, so why don't you go ahead? Big pressure on this one. <laughs> um, well, I think we gave the, the last one a 10. Uh, I think we're going to have to go down. We've given quite a few high marks recently. But it's not for that reason why I'm going to give with this score. Uh, but I am going to have to give it a seven on this occasion, JD. Well, look, seven is still a good score. If someone said a film was seven out of ten, I'd go and see it. It's still a good score. But I think you're right. I think it does hover around that mark. Um, I think most of the films we, we've seen have been either tens and nines. And I'm not quite sure if this is the lowest mark we've given so far. That's not to say it's not a good film, because I imagine most of the films me and you will be talking about will be pretty high up, um, sevens and above. Um, so I, I suppose what I'm trying to say is we've done a little bit of bashing of, of Ghostbusters 2. I, I think we've highlighted the bits that it got right, which is only fair. Um, but yeah, Seven feels right. I, I think I'm going to agree with you on that. Um, so, yeah, no, well played on that. And anything to add before we go? And just to thank everybody for listening and giving us your time and also for your tweets and following us and getting in touch with us and interacting with us. It really means a lot, as ever. You know, I've said that every episode uh, uh, more and more now because of the fact that you've given us your time so thank you so i must say goodbye well said i echo those sentiments entirely and thank you again to everyone who's been joining us again check out our twitter feed and instagram page uh, you can find some links to some old episodes and some fun on there so thanks again and we'll be back soon with another episode of the circuit of time see you next time nerds